chapter, we know we began dissecting the 14th chapter of John, received the message that revealed the sixth I am proclaimed by our Lord Jesus. Now, you may remember, you may already know it extremely well, may have recited it, memorized it, known it for quite some time, probably very familiar with the sixth I am in John chapter 14, verse 6. It is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. That was our focus verse, the one we keyed upon. But of course, we didn't just focus upon that one verse within chapter 14 that contains the sixth I am. If you recall, we began our examination of John chapter 14 by recognizing that Jesus had, well, at that moment, he had previously shared with his disciples about his soon departure and about his impending death which then greatly shook up the disciples, and they had grieved in, and they were perplexed, and they were, they were troubled in their hearts by what Jesus was sharing with them. So then Jesus then, sensing their perplexity, their bewilderment, and their troubled hearts, comforted them in John chapter 14 in the very beginning, preceding verse 6, by telling them that they must believe in him, that believe in God, believe also in me which equates to the fact that they simply must trust him, as we all must do. We don't know everything God has planned for us, and we're going to have times we're going to have a troubled heart. But that's when we truly need to trust him and believe. One of the books I was reading last week for this morning, I was reading about, again, this continuation of believing and trusting, and it said this, that to believe and trust is to place your entire weight upon something. And I began to process that in my mind. I thought, you know, what an incredibly accurate way of expressing believing and trusting. To believe and to trust is to place your entire weight, your entire being, I mean, you're, you're everything about yourself. Now, what better than to place all your entire being yourself on than Jesus Christ? There's nothing better. It does not get any better on believing and trusting than that, of course, of Jesus Christ. And so he was taking opportunity when he said to believe in God, believe also in me, to provide the comfort the disciples need at a very, very critical time in their life when they knew or they learned about the sin departure of their master, their teacher, their Lord. And we found then that not only was he telling them in verse 1, to believe in God and believe also in me, he went further to try to provide comfort for them. I mean, he sensed, Gord, again, their troubled heart. So he told them also in verses 2 and 3, he told them to express more comfort and to help them. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We looked upon those particular verses as well, verses 2 and 3, and gathered pretty quickly that we could say, then, well, heaven certainly is real. It's not some fairy tale or make-believe fantasy land. It is real. It's a real place. It's a mansion that is waiting for each and every one of us. And how wonderfully comforting it would be for the disciples to hear those words, but not just them, but for us as well, to know that heaven is real, and it's a place that God is preparing personally for you and that Christ will come back to take you to be with himself. And knowing that, that it awaits us, can help all of God's children get through the most difficult days and whatever crisis we may be having. And we certainly are going to have 
times of troubled hearts in crisis in their lives. So Christ said all this then to his disciples in the beginning of chapter 14, as we're having a troubled heart and a way to comfort them. And all that then leads into what he expressed of the greatest I am, arguably among all the seven, in chapter 14, verse 6, where he said once more, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we expanded at least in chapter 14 through the particular point of verse 6 or verse 7. We come back to today because we have maybe some unanswered questions. We ask ourselves today as we go back to the text in John 14, before we reveal the seventh and final I am next Sunday, what does that verse mean exactly? I mean, how can that verse, John 14, 6, the one we have heard over and over again of all the I am statements, what does it even mean in the world today? I mean, how could we take an opportunity to expand and explain that verse to someone? That's the kind of thing we process today as we go back to the text once more in John chapter 14 and expand a little further from where we left off last week. So stand with me this morning as we do to simply honor the reading of the word. We're going to go back once more to John chapter 14. We're going to read the first 14 verses. We'll go a little further this week than last week as we go back again and read over the verse that says, I am in verse 6, but all the text as well in the first 14 verses. Here's what John is writing, the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. When verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, then that leads in Jesus in verse 6, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But he adds in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. With another disciple, Philip steps up in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Well, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Oh, Father, Lord, we come again to the text written in John chapter 14 in his gospel. And I pray, Lord, as we go back to the text once more today and see this wonderfully expressed truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life. As we go back to that, expand, I pray, Lord, today that we better understand the text, but also prepare ourselves and perhaps the world in which we're living the truth, 
in the meaning of this verse and of all these verses. So, Lord, let us be attentive to what you have to say to us today. Speak directly to our hearts, Lord, and let us receive your message in its entirety. Again, we thank you for how the Holy Spirit will lead us here today into what we shall receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the verses preceding that great statement again, the I am expression verse 6, Jesus essentially, the verses preceding it, he essentially sets the joy of heaven as the ultimate end for all believers. And then in verse 6, Jesus revealed the only way to achieve it. It's pretty simple. I mean, for us, we look upon verse 6 and we say, okay, that is the way. It's the way, the truth, and life. And no one, no other way is it possible to receive the ultimate prize of heaven, to be with God, to be with Jesus, than through his Son. Now, we stated in last week's message that saying those words, expressing verse 6, is just not popular in the world today in which we're living. But to say and to believe and express John 14, 6, to say this truth is called the exclusivity of Christ. And we need to recognize then that exclusivity of Christ may be unpopular, but unpopularity does not diminish its truthfulness, which is our first point this morning. Because it may have been popular, does not reduce the fact that it's completely, totally true. I mean, to say that Jesus is the only way then, as you go out into the world and believe this truth, the exclusivity of Christ, as you go out proclaim this truth, written in John 14, 6, it's likely the people are going to look at you and label you then as a fanatic, as intolerant, as just some Jesus freak, some egotistical, narrow-minded person. But if that's the label we have to receive to proclaim the truth, then so be it. Author and scholar N.T. Wright states that Jesus' reply in verse 6, as we're keying upon at this moment again, to what Thomas's question was in verse 5, has haunted and confronted the world's imagination ever since. So much so that the Western world, which is our part of the world, of the last two centuries or so, this saying of Jesus has become one of the most controversial. And maybe yourself has experienced that in your life. That when you express that Jesus is the only way, you may be labeled some sort of person as egotistical, intolerant, insensitive, and you may be completely perplexing the person you're talking to. It may lead to controversy. Which because then of its apparent controversial nature of John 14, 6, it seemingly then has split, has split households, relationships, and amazingly, it has even split churches. Because if you're like me, believing and preaching and teaching and proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way, has probably, more likely, or will in your life, result in a loss of friendships or even the alienating of family members. Years ago, I had a church member who professed to me that he believed in the exclusivity of Christ. He, he said, Pastor, I know this is absolutely positively true. I'll proclaim his truthfulness. But as he believed in the truthfulness and the steadfastness he placed upon John 14, 6, he noticed rather quickly 
that it resulted in only a loss of business accounts. He was a salesman by nature. And he had a loss of business accounts. But not only did he lose business accounts because of the truth he believed in John 14, 6 of the exclusivity of Christ, he also lost promotion opportunities. He could not advance in the company any longer. As well, then he was excluded from certain groups and gatherings at his place of employment. They shunned him because he believed in the truthfulness. And he stood up on the foundation to believe in the Bible that Jesus is the only way. Now, because that happened to him, I was thinking last week as I thought about this person, that it, I thought of another principle that God taught us through his word that Jesus also conveyed. It comes to be in Matthew 16, 24, that there's a cost of being a follower and a believer. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So there's a cost. To, to believe certainly in the word of God as the absolute truth has a cost to it. And you'd be alienated from society or from even your family. But whatever the cost, whatever the pain or the ridicule, or whatever type of persecution you may receive from this truth and believing it and proclaiming it, it is all well worth it. I mean, Jesus Christ is the only way. And he rewards those who come through his gate, through him only. He rewards them with a heavenly home, or like I always like the King James Version the best, because it says there's a mansion awaiting us. That's your reward for believing and proclaiming in the exclusivity of Christ. But just think about it. If you start thinking about it even further, I mean, to be perfectly honest, to say, think, or suggest that there's another way to heaven to see God, to be with Jesus, is just simply absurd. Charles Stanley says the only way someone could come to the Father apart from Jesus is if that person had lived a completely sinless life in thought, word, deed. And no one but Jesus himself fits that profile. I mean, it really is quite simple. That no amount of good deeds, no amount of social action that you may have or humanitarian aid can come or gain an eternal reward. No other faith system in the world can lead believers to be the Father. Not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not even Judaism, not Islam, not Scientology, all the different things that man has as a religion, none of them. Not one of them will lead you to the Father. Now some people may be annoyed or even angry at such an exclusive position on our part. But the words of Jesus and the apostles leave absolutely no other option. It is quite clear. It is the only way. But it will not be popular. You may be labeled a fanatic. And the world will not like it when you proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. In March of 2018, the world lost one of the most brilliant minds ever born. Arguably, most brilliant minds ever born, Stephen Hawking. I'm not a big Stephen Hawking fan, so don't get me wrong. But Hawking was a renowned scientist, but also a well-known atheist who had been one to argue there is no such thing as, as exclusivity of Christ entering heaven. 
He would say it is not by Jesus and Jesus alone. In fact, Stephen Hawking, again, a brilliant scientific mind, argued there is not even an afterlife. He had many memorable, after his death in March of 2018, there was many different memorable quotes plastered upon the Internet. And I want to share a few of them with you. On the matter of God and creation, he said, it is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue torch and set the universe going. I mean, Hawking happened to be an advocate of the Big Bang Theory, often taught in the schools, on the establishment of the universe. In 2008, Hawking had an interview published in what's called The Guardian, in which he regarded the concept of heaven as a myth, believing there is no heaven or afterlife, and that such a notion was a fairy tale for people who were afraid of the dark. In 2011, on the American television series Curiosity on the Discovery Channel, he declared this, We are free to believe what we want, and it is my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one directs the universe, and no one directs our fate. In that same interview, he went on to declare once again what he called the profound realization. There is probably, probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. For that, I am extremely grateful. Those are just a few of the quotes shared in his death in March of 2018. We could go on and find many more similar to this. I mean, Hawking then is one of the many people in this world today who would tell you that Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven. He would say, if there even is a heaven, but he's not the only one. Oprah is another one. Now, to be clear, I do not associate a Oprah on the same ground as Hawking, which means I, do ne I would never think of Oprah as some brilliant scientific mind born in our century. But nonetheless, she argues against the exclusivity of Christ. She believes there are many ways to God. In her words, he said, there are a million ways to be a human being. I don't even understand that. And many paths to what you call God. Then she later said, well, I am a Christian who believes that there are more certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. And she lead millions of people follow Oprah. I mean, she has a large influence on them, maybe even more than Stephen Hawking had upon people. And they believe this. That there are multiple ways. But we know this is simply false teaching. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, again, tells us heaven is real. And John chapter 14, verse 6, rightly informs us there's only one way. And it's only through Jesus. It's a very simple truth. We have received it. The world rebukes it. It's called the principle of exclusivity. Jesus says there's only one way to God, to the Father. And it's similarly written. This is not the only place you can find this. I mean, it's also written similarly in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. 
But some would argue that this is way too narrow of a view. It's too narrow a position to be able to get to heaven. But in reality, it is wide enough for the entire world to get to heaven if the world will so simply choose to accept it. So then instead of worrying about how it limited it may sound to have only one way, we all should be proclaiming the same, thank you, God, thank you, Father, for providing a sure way to get to see you. But it just seems people either just don't want to accept it or just don't understand it. Which might be the case you go back to the text of the disciples. Return to this text with me and see if the disciples truly get it. Note that after Jesus answered Thomas's question in verse 5 with the very powerful truth I am in verse 6, we go back to verse 7, an often neglected verse, where Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, that verse then leads us to our second point, which is that Jesus then makes visible to mankind the very nature and principles of God. Jesus makes visible to mankind the very nature and principles of God. Notice, if you will, that after Jesus answered Thomas' question in verse 5, but the truth of verse 6, and even more specifically than in verse 7, it prompts Philip, another disciple, who is present, who is near. We had Thomas, who asked the question. Now we have Philip, who states then a rather bold request. Look at verse 8. Because Jesus is made visible to mankind the very nature of principles of God. But then in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, he doesn't get it yet. Lord, show us the Father." And it is enough for us. Now, when you really take that one verse in and of itself and see what Philip is saying here, I mean, it's it almost like it's a silly question for what should be for Philip a mature believer. I mean, if anyone is, should be familiar with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be able to see the Father through him, it would be his disciples, you would think. Or for anyone who is in a close, personal, deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus, they would think, well, that's kind of a silly question, a request by Philip. But shouldn't Philip have seen the Father through Jesus? I mean, he'd been following Jesus for three years. He's been with Jesus. And yet he asked Jesus to show him the Father. I mean, I, I read that multiple times and read through it, and in my mind I'm thinking, dude, how do you not see the Father through Jesus? They're the one and the same. Jesus is God incarnate. He's embodied. I mean, he's God in the flesh. So to a mature believer, a follower of Christ, it may seem like a silly request that Philip is making. But then it begin to calm down a little bit. And I think then, well, to someone who is a new believer in Christ, who is growing and maturing and obediently following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, it may not seem like a silly request or, or question. I mean, consider that none of us, not one of us, have ever seen God or Jesus. So perhaps it's not really a simple request after all. So then look with me at the response in, after Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, look with the response that Jesus offers to Philip in verse 9 and 10. 
verse 9, Jesus said to him, again speaking to Philip, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, the way I read that with a little bit of intensity there, it's almost like Jesus nearly gives Philip a rebuke. But if that's the way it is written and for us to receive, maybe to read further, it may be in the latter part of verse 10, verse 11, it's like Jesus' compassionate nature and loving teacher kicks in and then rightfully informs Philip more. Because he says in the latter part of verse 10, the words I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In verse 11, he says, believe, maybe more compassionate, believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, the whole point here is that Jesus makes visible to mankind the very nature and principles of God. Or, or maybe we just reworded that, Jesus is the visible, tangible image of the invisible God. He is a complete revelation of what God is like in every possible way. One commentary said Jesus was not a cardboard cutout or an abstract list of theological attributes. He exhibited a full range of potent emotions and showed his love in both gentle and tough ways. In other words, he mirrored God exactly. He mirrored God exactly. Jesus is the visible, tangible image of the invisible God. If you will, Jesus makes God real to us. He is a complete revelation of what God is like. So basically, as verse 11 informs us, Jesus began to explain to Philip, who wanted to see the Father, he explained to him that to know Jesus is to know God, which is our third point. Say it again. To know Jesus is to know God. I mean, knowing Jesus is not just knowing about him, but knowing Jesus as in the intimate, personal relationship with him. And then faithfully trusting him is not really instantaneous. You think, well, what's that mean it's not instantaneous? Well, it's not like if I walked in the back of the room and turned off the lights, that's instantaneous. It gets dark in the room. That's instant. But in our lives as believers, as our lives even as people, it's not instantaneous that we come truly into this intimate relationship with God. Because to put God first, Truly putting him first is an intentional effort that we must make. A deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus acquired through intentional effort of growing in personal experience and knowledge of him. It is gained through just being around other believers in church. Or it is gained through personal, quiet meditation, reading and studying his word. It is gained through prayer. And, and prayer meaning not speaking, but listening as God speaks to you. It is also gained by just listening to Christian music, whatever it may be your favorite. I mean, further, it, it, 
Insight and wisdom can be gained through group study. I mean, here at Crossroads, we offer group study. We offer on Sunday mornings. At 9.30, we offer our adult class in here. We have our teen study as well. We have even the children's study. And we even have children even study more now back there with some adult leaders as we have this message. But it's not limited to just Sunday morning. We have more personal growth that we need to have that close into a relationship to know God, to know Jesus. On Wednesday evening, we just finished the book of Revelation. It was hard. It was difficult. But now we're transitioning to a study on the disciples, which may be more easy, and we may even find we apply ourselves to the disciples rather quickly. But we don't just have adult study on Wednesday. We also have the teens and the children again. There's multiple ways for us to receive personal growth, to draw closer and closer to God, to see Jesus is to know God. And there's multiple ways here at the church in which we can know Jesus better and know God better. All that is offered in the very essence of verse 7 and verse 11. So when Jesus says to Philip, who's wanting to see the Father, if you really know me, you can see the Father as well, he's essentially saying to know Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus is to know God. And we must make an intentional effort on our part to truly want to know Jesus. In fact, it could be said as we make an intentional effort to truly know Jesus. That will be forever. Meaning that we never really stop thinking and learning or growing. We will always be students of the Word while we're in our earthly bodies. And as referred to as sanctification, which ultimately leads to glorification as we're united with Christ in our heavenly home. But until that day happens, we must make an intentional effort to know Jesus, to better know God. So until then, we sing, we pray, we fellowship, we read, we study. We teach his word and we rely upon the truth so we can know him more intimately. Now, if you think about that, notice how everything then to know God and to know Jesus really hinges upon John 14, 6. Where he says again, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So one commentary summarized it is that Jesus is the way. It's the way that connects a human being and his creator. Jesus is the truth. The revelation of God's realities, which mankind throughout the ages has yearned to know. And Jesus then is the source of abundant life that generates a fresh and wholesome desire for proper living. What an accurate way to say he is the way, the truth, and the life. He should be everything to every one of us. And we should desire to know him intimately. And to see then that to know Jesus is to know God. So we asked, and how can we experience abundant life in God? Well, the only way is to answer is to believe in Jesus Christ. Simply believe. We can believe him by faith. And we can believe him by the marvelous sacrifice he made for you and me. He made a wonderful sacrifice for every one of us when he willingly went to Calvary. I mean, think about it. Jesus took the nails 
for you and for me. He made the ultimate sacrifice for you and found that you were worth it. People search for some truth. People search for meaning. And they search for God. And it all ends in Christ. Jesus Christ is literally all we need. He's all we need. To know Jesus is to know God. He is the only way to the Father. That is the exclusivity of Christ. In great contrast to Stephen Hawking, who we referred to earlier that died in the spring of March 2018, a few weeks along the same time frame in 2018 was the death of Billy Graham. Two men, if you will, with not only greatly contrasting lives, but beliefs. And upon Graham's death in the spring of 2018, I had a friend who sent me an article that he found that was titled, Billy Graham's Final Column. So allow me to read to you a portion of what was written in that article about Billy Graham's final column. The editor reportedly asked Billy Graham, how would you like to be remembered? Here was Graham's answer. Billy Graham answered this way, how would you like to be remembered? I hope that I will be remembered as someone who was faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, a father, and friend. I'm sure I failed in many ways, but I take comfort in Christ's promise of forgiveness. And I take comfort in God's ability to take even our most imperfect efforts and use them for his glory. He said, by the time you read this, I will be in heaven. But I won't be in heaven because I preached to crowds or because I tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. He asked the question, do you know that you go to heaven when you die? You can, only by committing your life to Christ today. Billy Graham knew about the exclusivity of Christ. He lived it, he preached it, he taught it. In a world today, people will not believe in the exclusivity of Christ. But that does not mean to reduce its truthfulness. It's still positively, absolutely true. There's only one way to the Bible. Now, if you had asked Stephen Hawking when he was alive, he would have told you there's no way, if there even is an afterlife. So in a way, a conclusion with putting John aside now in chapter 14 and thinking about John 15 next week, we'll expand and finalize with the final I am, and then maybe ask ourselves this question. If you had to write a final column like Billy Graham has and say, how would you like to be remembered, how would you like to be remembered? Would you like to be remembered more than notion of Stephen Hawking saying, okay, I'm going to accept the world's teaching. There's multiple ways. I'm going to go out and proclaim this truthfulness. And I'm going to see what happens. 
Or do you really want to proclaim the truthfulness, the exclusivity of Christ, as means in John 14, 6, and live like Billy Graham? And teach the truthfulness of it all. And be remembered that way. There's only one way to truly be remembered. And that is only by the teaching and accepting and living by faith and believing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As he is the only way. So somehow, somewhere, if you've never received this free gift offered by Jesus today, then truly come receive the only way to the Father. Father, Lord, we do come to you this morning just thankful that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That you do provide for us, Lord, the only way to truthfully, honestly see your face. In due time, Lord, we know, we believe, we trust that will happen. So, Lord, today as a collection of believers here together, we just want to express our gratitude, our thankfulness. At the same time, Lord, perhaps pray for anybody who may be here today or listening later or any friend or colleague or even family member we have who has not received Jesus in their life. And I pray, Lord, you would stir in their hearts greatly. Let's all pray that together, that we would stir in someone close to us that we love, stir greatly in their heart, Lord, and break their heart. We would recognize the world's teaching is not right. It is false. There's not multiple ways. There's one way. And we pray, Lord, they receive that truth. Lord, we have received the truth. If there be one here today who is not, let them boldly come forward today to receive you in their life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We'll willingly come to Calvary and take in our place. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.